Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods. Um, pretty much wherever you want to listen to podcasts is available. Uh, in addition to the regular podcasts and the interviews on the YouTube channel, you also get the occasional quick take review of... Uh, movies that I may not necessarily have a lot to say in written form, but I do want to put my words out there. So that's at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. You'll get early access to reviews, exclusive content, including a series that I'm doing called, called Leaving the Collection, which basically I look at a movie that I've had in my collection for a while and I watch it one more time and basically give my thoughts on it and sort of why it's leaving the collection at this point. And uh, that is at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. So we are continuing our discussion of horror on the podcast. And I am so thrilled to be joined by a podcaster, filmmaker, former film critic. You know him from a lot of different things, 80s all over. His current podcast, Overhated, Science versus Fiction. I, I'm pleased to be joined by Scott Weinberg. Scott, thank you very much for joining me. You are very welcome, Brian. Thank you for the invite. So the the first question I had um, is, what is it? what is it that got you into movies when you first started to realize you were falling in love with movies. Oh, that that's a simple, that's an easy question. I know lots of people when it comes to a something like that, they don't they you can never pin it down, but I can kind of pin it down. Um it was I had an early 80s and my dad came home with something a big bag or box from the store and we all went down into the uh, cellar, the cellar, the basement to uh the uh to just you know and I was sure I was positive that it was an Atari um, because, you know, that was hot at the moment. And I, when I was a nine-year-old, 10-year-old kid, that's what I wanted, an Atari. Mm -hmm. Now that I look back on this memory, my brain's like, why would your father, knowing what you know about him, why would he buy an Atari? And why would he come home excited about it? My, my mother would have done that, knowing that we, my sister and I would have flipped out. But my father wouldn't have thought that. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was not great with gifts. My mom was the gift giver. Um, and, but it wasn't a D, it was a uh, Betamax. And my dad's explaining how you could record shows off TV and watch it later. Uh, and you could rent movies from the store. And my sister and I were intrigued, but certainly not enthused. And um, I would say within six months, I was just obsessed with watching as many movies as I could. Mm -hmm. My dad had mentioned in passing, my dad was a firefighter, and he mentioned in passing that they had rented, among other horror films, the the thing and alien uh and i don't know if they watched those together or but it was definitely brought up in the same conversation mm -hmm. and at, towards the end of the conversation i i remember saying to my dad well how were the movies and he paused and he went not for you <laughs> and within a week both i had finagled my way to see them and i think i saw them at 11 or 12 
And I, that was it. I was hooked. That was when I, Alien and The Thing. That, those are the two. I mean, I, I was a movie nerd before that, obviously. If you get mm-hmm. to stay up late to watch The Wizard of Oz, you like The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think parents psychologically build that love into their kids by making movies a special occasion. And then kids grow up loving movies because of that. Um, and my grandmother used to record horror movies for me off HBO. And, and I was allowed to go see most movies. Uh, I, I was, my, my parents knew that I was uh, obsessed with movies. And I was, you know, not just, you know, not just for something to avoid work and schoolwork, but it was like, you know, I was into the, uh, even more than video games for a while. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty much uh, early 80s. It was easy to become a movie nerd. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit younger than you are, but I mean, I, I certainly remember that feeling of watching some of these movies come out, you know, the Star Wars, the Rares of Lost Arks, the Ghostbusters, the Jaws and all of that. Yeah. Well, and I, my mom showed me Jaws at a certain point and I watched some of the older, other older movies at some point. Well, yeah, everybody yeah, you just has a story it. like this, either either at a sleepover or their mom brought took them to a movie or their dad bought them a DVD or just, it could be any one of a thousand different anecdotes, but it's always boils down to the same thing. You know, uh, I was at a lonely place. I was bored. I was unhappy. And I found something in the artistry of movies that made me feel better. Um, whether it's just something to take up the time for 90 minutes or something that can uh, reassure me about something in life or can make me feel good, laugh, scream, cry. You know, I wasn't able to have articulated this at 12 years old, but, you know, movies are a great outlet for kids. They, you know, they really are because kids can't always articulate what makes them happy and what makes them sad, but they can recognize it in a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, it's like the great Roger Ebert said, movies are empathy machines, mm-hmm. and I believe that. I was actually just thinking of that quote before you uh, put it out there. Um, yeah. And you're, it's absolutely true. I mean, especially when, especially when it is, you are at that point where it's hard to, it, it's hard to say exactly how you're feeling. And I mean, I, I got there a bit later in life, but at the same time, I just, once a movie clicked with me, it clicked with me. And one of the things that I think a lot, a lot of people identify you with in particular was horror. You already mentioned Alien and the Thing, which are two tremendous examples of the genre. What was it about horror specifically that drew you to it? Uh, That's a great question. Well, A, I think it's colorful. You know, I mean, like in some cases, it's very dark and and adult. But in in many cases, horror is fun. It's colorful. It plays like a fun house in in a carnival. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the posters are scary, you know, scary, but not that scary because they're in a newspaper and, you know, it's all artifice, but it's trying every single horror movie is like, this one will scare the hell out of you. But like with that underlying knowledge of everybody's, everybody accepts it, that it's all completely fake. So you can say as horrifying and as realistic and as terrifying, you could say it all you want, but deep down, we all know it's just a show. And, and that's part of, it's like, it's like why people like uh, professional wrestling. Like, yeah. it's the same reason that people like horror movies. You know, nobody ever looks at a horror fan and goes, you know, horror movies are fake, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we know. Like, it, it's, they're, like, they're not fake. It's called fiction. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and so it's like, it's, it's kind of the same thing. You, you're willing to buy into the fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with like traditional soap operas, professional wrestling, Star Wars, uh, uh, Harry Potter books, you know, anything that go, goes on and on. It really captures our attention. Yeah. And I think one of the things in particular about horror, um, I, I love the way you put it as far as it being like a, a carnival and, and just having all of these different things that it's capable of doing. And I, I definitely have come to appreciate that more and more as I've really started and, and to dive And of course, some horror genre. movies are about serious things. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say that like not every horror movie is a carnival ride. Some are about, you know, very serious and disturbing and upsetting things like, you know, death and suicide and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so, you know, horror is a beautiful thing and that a lot of times it is fun, escapism, but it can also get across painful and difficult messages that mm. other genres can't, can't do quite as well. I always point to Cronenberg's The, the Fly as yeah. a movie that like talks about, you know, people call it an AIDS parable, but he, he, I believe, has said more than once it was just meant to represent somebody living with a dying relative. Could be AIDS, could be cancer, could be anything. And... Mm. That movie is so poignant and touching and brutal and, and honest in a way that I think a lot of genres can't be because it would, it would just, if it was a drama, it would be too pushed button and too manipulative. If it was a comedy, it would be tasteless. But in a horror film, you can really make your point in a gruesome, powerful way. Uh, I mean, it also helps to have really good artists uh, in charge mm-hmm. of the film. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, and, you know, what you're getting at there, I mean, the, the three movies we're going to be talking about today, I think, are really excellent examples of that. And, um, you know, but I mean, I, I remember as a kid, it's like one of the few horror movies I really, I really watched and really enjoyed was Creepshow. And that's one of those that's just so much fun. I mean, yeah, George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, but, and Stephen King, more serious uh, horror as well, but at the same time, it's like the fact that those two came together and did something that was just, in a way, very wacky and very fun within the genre is is really special. And the fact that they were able to branch out of their usual comfort zones to do that is is, is really unique and, and enlightening. Uh, oh, Creepshow is it a great gateway? You're sorry, I pick up. Uh, <clears throat> Creepshow is a gate. I'm going to try this one more time. I'm trying to say great gateway. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Creep Show is a great gateway horror film because obviously, like you said, you know, a lot of these old EC inspired horror stories, they're morality tales. They're, you know, if you look at it, the stories are don't be a rotten wife to your miserable husband. And, you know, don't, don't cheat on your spouse and don't abuse your elderly mother for her money. Like, there are all these simple morality tales that are taken from the old EC comic style, uh, and they are kind of modernized. And I think that Creepshow is a masterpiece. I, I, I'm not kidding. I think that, remember, remember when Rodriguez and Tarantino made a big, big hullabaloo about making Grindhouse? Yeah. That's what Creep, Creepshow was, the first Grindhouse. Yeah. A movie like admiring and emulating the stuff that it saw 40, 30 years ago. Um, but it didn't have to advertise that it was like a grindhouse. It was just, here we go. Mm-hmm. Here's something that we all know and love. And I, I mean, there's a reason that Creepshow, whenever people talk about anthology horror, Creepshow is the godfather. Yeah. 
They're they're all it's not the first. It's certainly not the first. Amicus made what seven of them, and uh, some of them are damn good. But I still think that when when you talk about anthology horror, may of uh, I mean tell Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt. Yes, Asylum might be my personal favorite of all time, even more than Creepshow. But yeah, that that's the movie people point to when they say I love anthologies. They all oh, uh, Creepshow is the great granddaddy. Oh yeah, absolutely. What is it, you know, so we're, we'll go ahead and uh, get into the three films that we're going to be talking about here. And the, the theme that I gave you when I suggested, when I uh, brought this up was sort of under the radar horror films. And it's funny because of the fact that the three films that I, you know, it, it's funny, I don't necessarily consider these under the radar specifically, but in a, I think outside of film fans and outside genre fans, I definitely think they are because of the fact that they're not the thing and creep show and alien and names that people are necessarily going to remember. What was it about these three specifically that inspired you to uh, suggest them? Uh, Well, I think it's because like you said, they're not wide release horror films. They, uh, they all got decent, well, except one. They got decent releases, but they're small, smaller films. Horror fans will be like, you think these are <laughs> underknown, you know, like obscure? No, they're not obscure. But in the mainstream realm, they are definitely underappreciated or overlooked. Or dare I say, mm, overheated? No. Um, may yeah. deserve to be a hit. Lionsgate released it in a horrible test screening pattern and dumped it. Um, and it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I have gone on to become good friends with the director, director, Mr. Lucky McKee, who is a wildly talented guy. And I, uh, I will always use May as a good example of under the radar horror. Uh, every horror fan by now has seen it, but I still push it. And, and for some reason, I've always paired it up with the brilliant uh, haunted asylum story, session nine, and the bizarre horror western dark comedy called ravenous mm-hmm. and whenever people have asked me on twitter or facebook or whatever have you can you name some underrated horror movies or under the under the radar or under underseen i for years from like 2000 or so on i just those are the three i've thrown out i have new additions recently you know uh, other than that but for some reason i've always paired those three together may session nine and frailty and then uh no may session nine what did i say ravenous Ravenous. Frailty was number four. <laughs> if, you, if you're listening to this episode, add that one to your list too. Bill Paxton's Frailty. Boy, yeah. that, that's a great horror movie. Well, I mean, and, and we are definitely going to get into it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation because I've been a big fan of that one since I uh, saw it in theaters. Uh, we are going to start, though, with Brad Anderson's Session 9. And it's funny because of the fact that I had... This movie's been on my brain for so long... I could have sworn at some point I had seen it. And as we were, as I was getting ready to prepare for this episode, it occurred to me, oh, wait, I haven't seen this. Um, so this was, this was actually my first watch. And but you I'm, had seen the David Caruso gift. I don't know that I had seen the gift. I mean, I've, the, I, I've seen the other ones. The wonderful gift of, this, of David Caruso going, fuck. <laughs> 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 no, I don't know that I had seen that. But, um, it's funny because of the fact that Brad Anderson, for me, for a long time, 
the movie I would point to from him was actually a movie he did a couple of years before called Next Stop Wonderland, which is mm, a delightful yeah. little romantic comedy with Hope Davis. I saw that. I thought it was wonderful. I absolutely love the soundtrack to that. It was terrific. Um, and then after Session 9, he's basically associated with horror and genre. And so Session 9 is about an asbestos cleaning crew that are working in an abandoned mental hospital with a horrific past. And this is this this actually really as as soon as we have this uh the establishment of the mental hospital and them walking through him and uh walking through the hospital for the first time the the movie that I couldn't stop but think about was my favorite horror movie of all time, which is uh Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and the yeah. introduction of the Torrances to the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. When 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 they're first introduced to, or to, tour around this dilapidated, broken down building, uh, yeah, I I, may, I never never put that together, but I guess that does make sense that he is the uh, the, the the quote unquote tour he's getting is not dissimilar to what uh, to the opening in The Shining. Um, but you know that that you know obviously that's the beauty of of good art is that like I watched this movie probably seven times. I don't think I thought of The Shining once. You, mm -hmm. you know, you see it once or twice and you're like, oh, that's The Shining. I see that. Um, and, and like both are legit. That's what art is, you know? Yeah. When did you first watch Session 9? Oh, gosh. Session 9, I hate to say it. I, I want to say, I wish to, I could say I saw it at a festival and I championed it, but I, I, I didn't see it theatrically. Mm -hmm. I saw it when it first hit home video and I went nuts for it. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of, a lot of these films I've supported, uh, but yeah, this one I did not get to until later May, I, I went on a whole rigmarole to see it in theaters. We'll get to that in a bit, yeah. but no session nine, I did not see until it was on a video and, uh, yeah, I was just, I became a Brad Anderson fan instantly. And then after that, he did the machinist, which is great. Uh, he did the trans Siberian, which is a, a fun train thriller. Um, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a Brad Anderson fan. I'm always curious. I'm always excited to see what he has next. Mm -hmm. No, and I the thing that I love about this one is it's essentially a haunted house movie in a lot of ways because of the fact that you're you're dealing with this mental hospital with a past and a terrible past, and you have one of the one of the workers and the crew who are listening to session tapes from one of the patients. But you also have this double aspect of the haunted house where it's not it's not just this supernatural aspect of the house yeah. the the hospital. It's almost like a side them. dish, isn't it? It's yeah. the, the Peter Mullen. Peter Mullen is dealing with um, some kind of horrible trauma in his life, and we keep cutting away to him trying to reconcile with his wife. He did something terrible, and we're trying to figure out what it is. And it it's obviously it's an essential aspect of the movie. But even without that aspect, it's a fun haunted house or haunted asylum movie. Uh, but then that adds, I think, a real interesting layer of humanity and sadness to the scary story. Oh, absolutely. And uh, but the the thing that's also kind of interesting is that not only do you have the haunted the haunted house aspect, 
But you also have the fact that it's like they're working in a situation where if they're not careful, they could potentially die because of oh, what yeah. they're because of everything that they're taking in during this process. And to me, that really adds another dimension to that aspect that is really kind of fascinating. And it it's something that you they they acknowledge, but it really is more of the psychological aspects that come in. You're like you said with the Peter Mullen character, and then uh, David Caruso and uh, Josh Lucas, their their uh, <clears throat> love, their hate hate relationship with one another, and 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 a great performance by Brandon Sexton third as an obnoxious kid, but you still somehow care about just a little. Yeah, like in in most movies, you'd hate this character, mm-hmm. like just hate him, like one like pure hate. Um, but uh, in this movie, he's obnoxious and flawed. But you know, he has a moment towards his character's end in a hallway under underground that is one of the scariest things I saw in years. It is so so creepy. Yeah, and this this movie does a lot with this. This is a great example of a movie. It does a lot with a little because of the fact that they. They filmed at Danvers Asylum, which Anderson had driven by on a regular basis. And I guess they were only used, allowed to use like three sections of the asylum um, in order to film it. And because everything else was just, it was not safe for them. But I love the fact that this, this works with a lot of the use of shadows, the use of sound design whether it's the oh, yeah. score or just sound effects in general. This, this, this hits a lot of different buttons with me as far as what I love I like, about uh, scary You know movies. what I love in settings like this? I love like the depth of field. I like a deep hallway where you can see all the way down and yeah. all the little details. Like, I don't, you know, sometimes you, like the whole point of, of somebody shooting a shot of looking down a hallway is that we've all looked down a very dark, empty hallway and thought, I don't want to go down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, uh, in order for that to work, it has to be somewhat realistic. And we have to be able to see it. it. It can't just be like six feet and then a blurry haze. And the cinematography in this movie is fantastic. It's by uh, Uda Bryce-Witz. Uda Bryce-Witz, I want to get that right. And this was one of the first films to use uh, Sony's uh, HD cameras. And I I love the look of this film. It, it's just rough enough to where it has that low-budget feel to it that a lot of really great low-budget horror movies have. But it also has this kind of unusual sheen that's almost... It is almost otherworldly in a lot of ways, especially when you're talking about that depth of feel during, down hallways, and especially when Mullen is... Uh, his character is looking at that um, big room that has that just single chair sitting in the middle of it. Yeah. It's just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and you kind of just get the idea of like the Danvers or the, or the hospital as it's named in the film is just, even though I, I love the idea of like, even people who don't believe in ghosts could be in a building like that and be like, yeah, there's something here. It's a negative vibe. It's an unpleasantness. It's a so much misery piled upon misery and you know other you know some people would roll their eyes at any of that but um i i think that it's the idea of there being like 
not a ghost like ooh, chasing you down a hallway, but like the, the entire location being malevolent. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like I, you know, it. I I I'm absolutely with you. I mean, I know the uh, the the theater I used to work at before it closed. Like our projection booth, there was one section down it where like it was very you know minimally lit. So it's like even though I could be down, I've been down that hallway dozens upon dozens of times. It's like yeah, that still creeps me out. It you Dude, you still you could live in the same that. house for a, you could live in this same house for fifty years. That'd still be creeped out by a dark hallway. That's oh, just yeah. primal, you know. Like uh, human beings are, you know, we are innately afraid of walking down some uh, uh, dark path with lots of, uh, you know, dangers. <laughs> mm. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that is one of the things that's always it's really fun in this one. I mentioned the music and the sound design earlier. They also use the session tapes on the soundtrack, I I think the way those are used to, to sort of show the way the mindsets of these characters are going downhill, I, I think is always a, it, it's a, it's an interesting use of not only exposition for the history of the location, but also a way of putting us in the, giving us another look at the way that these characters now, are going that's downhill. It's a great, it's a great point. It's a great point that is shows the, you that Brad Anderson is a good writer because he found a way to get a lot of exposition into scenes that are fascinating. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times exposition is, you know, it's like, you know, required heavy lifting in the first act. We have to set, you have to tell the audience certain things. And the key is, can you tell the audience certain things in an artful, clever, subtle, creative way without being like, we are now in this building to clean up the asbestos and look at all the, you know, it, it's really hard to like tell the audience stuff. When you're, when I'm telling you a horror story, I can go back, go, oh, oh, oh. And the place was completely broken down and, and every hallway was, and you're like, but when you're telling a horror story, you, you need to get that data out. And yeah, it's a fascinating way to uh, explain what happened in this facility. Also, as any horror fan will tell you, section nine refers to this whole series that, the Peter Mullen character is listening to a bunch of sessions, psychological, uh, what would you call it? Um, I, I would psychological, uh, I would say, um, oh God. And interview. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably the best way I can think of to put it right now. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're basically uh, psychiatric sessions is what they are. And, uh, basically of a psychiatrist talking to this one patient, who happens to have multiple personalities. And I, and the thing that's really kind of, the, the thing that's really kind of interesting to me is you would think in, in another movie, somebody would try to make manifest like that idea of multiple personalities and stuff like that. Yes. But yeah, I agree. In, 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 a, in, a, in a less confident filmmaker's hands, they'd be like, we need an actual monster. Yeah. You know, like we need a physical something because there's not a physical something in this movie. It's all how it affects the men working there and the history of the place. And if there had been like a monster, I, I love monsters, but man, that would have hurt the movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the place is enough to scare you, to terrify you and to 
to be working on these characters and it's it's I I love the fact that at a certain point you really start to wonder how much is real that we're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. Like, did Josh Lucas's character really go to Miami, or did he just get did, did he just get lost? And if he didn't go to Miami, well, why did Caruso's ex say they went to Miami? It's mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where it's like you. Like the characters, you start to lose your grip on reality of the movie, but at the same time, that's when the movie really continues to build and build to when the when the truth is ultimately revealed about Mullen's character, it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And and it's a weird uh analysis because what he's done should make us not like him at all. But the film takes the approach from the beginning of this is a guy who's done something terrible and he feels he's broken. He literally just, he destroyed himself because of something that he's done. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's not a good guy, but he's still a human being. Mm-hmm. So there's that to me, that's where empathy in a horror film comes from. A character does not have to necessarily be likable, but they do need to be relatable in some way. And I think that's one of the things uh, we're going to see throughout these three films is that that, that is, that is the key point where it's like, even if the character is not doing something that we morally agree with, we still sympathize with that character. We still empathize with what they're going through and what they have been going through. And exactly. That the young character is pretty damn obnoxious and we still feel bad for him when he is terrified. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, this no, I mean, if if you haven't had a chance to see this, I'm, unfortunately, I don't I don't know if it's streaming anywhere right now for on one of the streaming channels. It should be. I mean, it should be. I, hold on, I'll check for you. But yeah, keep going. But uh, I mean, even even if you do have to pay to rent, it's well worth paying to rent for rent. Yeah, I, it's not. It looks like it's not streaming anywhere right now. But it, obviously, it is available to rent or buy from all the standard, you know, YouTube, Google. Apple, yeah, and Amazon. Four bucks to rent it. It's worth it. It it's absolutely worth it. And uh, I, you know, it was it was really great to discover that one. I actually watched it uh, yesterday, and um, I also watched our next movie that we're going to talk about uh, yesterday. It this isn't the first time watch. I've seen this a few times over the years, and that is Bill Paxton's Frailty, which came out in two thousand two. I did see this one in theaters. Uh, when did you see this one? This one I did see at a press screening, and um, believe it or not, I took my mother. Oh, wow. to, to see Frailty, uh, and I uh, I did not. I thought I knew it was going to be a religious thriller, but I did not know it was going to be quite so <laughs> gut punch disturbing. Yeah, because it like the message that it leaves with is a really challenging, difficult, excellent. It really uh, is, like, yeah. As far as writing is concerned, if you're religious, I could see you hating this movie. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's a it's an indictment of organized religion, and I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. it. It's funny. I actually watched this one with my mother too, and uh, yeah, we were we were both big fans of this actually. Um, so this is if if you haven't watched it, this this is I I've always been a fan of this one since I first saw it in the theaters. Uh, it's it's about a man who comes to 
an FBI agent in his office and tells him that he knows who what is known as the God's Hand Killer is, and that it's his brother. The, the man in question is played by Matthew McConaughey. The F- FBI agent is played by Powers Booth. And we start to get, uh, we start to hear from McConaughey about his childhood with his brother, Adam, and uh, his father, played by Bill Paxton. And his father comes with a vision to the boys and says that God has told me that there are demons in the world, that demons are real, that demons exist, and it is our job to kill them. And we see the way that that unfolds. And, you know, it's funny, it's been a few years since I'd watched this, and one of the things that this, this, the, the flashbacks take place in the early, in the late 70s, and, you know, that was around the time you're starting to see Satan Panic come into play. And, one of the things that really struck me is how, unfortunately, tragically, some of these ideas and some of these tragedies are starting to come through again because of conspiracy theories and all of these weird different conspiracy theories like, oh, there are demons, oh, there's you know, good versus evil, and uh, it it really is a it's it's. It is a is definitely a damning uh, look at religious extremism, but it's also it is a powerful psychological thriller because of the fact that you do kind of wonder how much of what McConaughey is saying. You you wonder why he's saying all of this at the time. And I, 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 what's interesting to me is that frailty and session nine kind of have a similar theme in it. <laughs> Not only do we have an unreliable lead character or narrator, mm-hmm. but as it turns out, if we knew the whole story, we would hate that yeah. lead character. We would like if you were told from the aftermath and then told the backstory of what the Bill Paxton character did involving his sons, you, your first and normal reaction would be he's a monster. But yeah. because it's so well written, Brett Hanley wrote this script, because it's so well written, it actually has you tricks you into feeling empathy for someone who should never, you should not feel sympathy or empathy for this man for what he's doing and putting his kids through. But it's that, that I think that's part of the reason that people rarely even talk about it. It is a disturbing concept yeah. of not only like a, an adult convincing their child to kill someone, but what goes on in the third act of the movie it's. I'm just impressed that the movie even got made. Frankly, it it really is. It really is impressive. I mean, maybe it. You know, I would imagine this is one of those movies where Bill Paxton probably would not have been able to uh, get this made as a director unless he agreed to act in it. Um, even though, I mean, he was clearly able to get McConaughey in there, but the fact is, it's like Paxton is. Paxton being such a such such an endearingly enjoyable presence on yeah. screen is such a huge benefit to this movie because of the fact that you when he tells you, oh, there are demon you know, the the Lord spoke to me and there are demons, 
you believe that he believes in. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If he comes off as like wild-eyed or loony uh, in the early parts of this movie, it falls apart. He has to be convincing. Uh, he has to be earnest or it, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paxton is, is amazing. And I, I, I don't know if part of the allure of this was he just loved the script and also saw a great role for himself. Or he just, I don't know what his motivation was behind this particular project. But man, it is a, I think it's a masterpiece. I truly think Frailty is a masterpiece. Yeah, I, I, I definitely love it more now than arguably I ever have before. And I've always been a big fan of it. McConaughey is such a great narrator. This is this is really like an unheralded performance of his. It is. Powers Booth also fantastic in this yeah. movie, by the way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But as McConaughey the, uh, as the cop. Yeah. McConaughey as the narrator, just you the use of his I, I think this is one of those cases where his his accent is just makes a huge amount of difference because of and it's kind of the same thing that Paxson has in his 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 performance, where as soon as you hear him talk about this, you just believe it. Right. And the kids are great, too. The, yeah. You know, it's really a difficult balance because when when you're dealing with kids in a movie and they have this much to do, you really run the risk of, you know, kids. I hate to be a Grinch, but bad kid performances can be annoying. So oh, yeah. I don't blame the kid. I, I you know, I, no, no ill will towards any child, mm -hmm. but if if a kid's performance is not good, it can sink a movie like few things can sink a movie. And the the, the two young kids and the two sons in this movie are freaking great. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I especially Jeremy Sumter's young Adam. I think was. I mean, Matt O'Leary as Fenton is really yeah. good. There's something about. Sumter's Adam, though, that really was connected with me this time. And the fact that he's so, it's, I think it's because of the fact that he's just so blindly willing to go along with his father. It's like, what does that say about him? And the way, but the thing is, you believe that he believes it. And it's it's just such a performance and the fact that he gets so far into it it really shows you how impressionable kids can be and just how dangerous the idea of radicalization can be and i mean this is you know it it's one of those things where it's like a lot so many people talk about you know radicalization of kids it's when it's like this is the type of thing that if you tell a kid this unfortunately they might believe it it's like not every kid is necessarily going to be fenton in this case mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I, I just looking over at wikipedia roger ebert gave this movie four stars i, I remember that now yeah um and uh you know god love him roger ebert was sometimes pretty difficult or pretty rough on horror movies mm -hmm. so when he gave something four stars uh you know you, you took note and uh i think this this he didn't help. The movie didn't even break $18,000 at the box office. Oh, no, no, 18 million. What did I say? 18,000. Uh, but I mean, e either way, it was not as successful as it should have been. I mean, it, you know, and I, you know, talking about Paxson's direction, it's like so much of it is 
so much of it is centered on the characters, so much of it is centered on the actors, but the ways he the ways that he uses light to play up the religious angle of when he's spoken to is just it's so subtle like and we we sort of talked about with session nine it's like a lesser director would have done more to try and make this like really big and broad and you know you will actually seen an angel and stuff like that to a certain extent and the way yeah. that the effects are done here is just really impressive yeah and and it really what i like the most about session nine is that if you're really into it and you're paying attention afterwards there's lots of things that you can chat about like wait so that so that means that all along yup he and the boys yeah you know and it's like it's upsetting it's a disturbing movie to yeah. talk about i don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it but it is uh <clears throat> it's it's disturbing in a very intelligent way yeah that way. oh yeah and i mean i had forgotten i'd remembered one of the one of the twists but i had forgotten one of the other twists and you know the, this ending, because, yeah, I don't want to spoil it either, because if you haven't seen this, you deserve to experience that twist yourself in in the film. But I will admit, like, when when one of the twists happens, it's like, well, how do I feel about that now, thinking about, like, what we have seen or what we haven't seen in, in the film in terms of what Paxton is shown us as you know they've been going through this situation because one of the things that we one of the things that we get a sense for is that he feels like he can see the sins that these people have done and i mean it's essentially if a guy says to you i i see demons every ninth person i see is a demon yeah and you'd be like okay that you're unhinged and but then you think, well, what would happen if somebody would go home and repeat that to their two young sons? Mm -hmm. Well, you would hope that, you know, normalcy would intervene at some point. Uh, but what if the boys just believe their dad? And then it further extrapolates, what if the dad is right? Um, and then, of course, there's the, you know, there's the hacky sack back and forth of, is it is it real? Is it not? Is it real? Is it not? And that ambiguity, and, and you know, good well-written ambiguity is like a compliment to yeah. the viewer mm. it's like saying any one answer i give even if it's a fun answer is not going to be satisfying it's more satisfying if i take you halfway through an ending and let you fill in the blanks for the rest and talk about it and mm. I, I think both of the movies that we've talked about so far uh <clears throat> do that oh yeah absolutely uh i did want to i did want to give love to brian tyler's score for this it's it from the very beginning over the images and credits, it really sets the tone for this movie. This is I, I do think this is one of his best scores. I mean, there he he's done some really solid scores over the years. He he's somebody who and he I know around this time he also did Bubba Hotep, which I absolutely adore that score. But um he he's really an underrated genre film uh films composer. Yeah. Uh also want to throw some love towards the great Bill Butler, still cooking at 101 years old. Yeah. He shot Jaws. He shot The Conversation. Um, he, 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 he's amazing. He's a, he shot Rocky II. He didn't shoot the first one. Uh, and Bill Butler shows that 
all you need is a world-class cinematographer to make your horror movie 10 times better. That's all you need. Yeah. And this is this movie looks like a million bucks and it didn't cost, it cost 11 million. This mm-hmm. movie looks like it costs more than that. It oh, looks, yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And, um, yeah, I, I've, I've been a big fan of it since 2002. I may be even more of a fan of it now having watched it this most recent time. It, it, it gets under your skin. And I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's, that's one of the things that great horror can do is that, but not in a way that, in a way that makes you feel unsettled, but also in a way that makes you think about how you react to the world. And I, yeah. I think that's, that's something that's always really good to remember when it comes to horror. Yeah. I, I mean, like if, if the only message that you take from frailty is there are two sides to every story and that, you know, that's enough, but it, it's such a, it's such a fascinating movie because it preys on your expectations and what you think, and it knows what you're going to think about these things and then turns it on its head in in act three i don't yeah i don't want to accidentally spoil anything but yeah if you have not seen frailty do yourself a favor hold on let me check where it's screening where you can if it's streaming anywhere looks oh like it's God. on amc plus looks like it might be on oh. amc plus okay um hbo max has it if you're an hbo subscriber but yeah otherwise same deal four bucks rent it anywhere but yeah you will not be sorry yeah, absolutely. Or it, it looks like it's on sale to buy for eight bucks, which means watch it twice and it's paid for itself. And you will watch it every Halloween, I think. Yeah, honestly, just probably put down the eight bucks to buy it because of the fact that it's 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 completely worth it. I've had my collection since two thousand two, and I I always I whenever I take it back out, I I'm always uh, I I'm always reminded of how great it is. Um, and that, that was definitely the case when I rewatched the last film that we're going to be talking about tonight, which is Lucky McKee's May. And okay, uh, I, sorry, I did before. Can I interrupt real quick? Yeah, I, I made a mistake. I thought, because it is one of my standbys, I thought for some reason we were also covering Antonia Bird's Ravenous, which I just have to throw in a plug for. It is a bizarre uh, Western action about, uh, has action, horror, thriller, and it's about people at an isolated camp that who believe, start to believe in uh, some Native American custom that the Wendigo, if you eat your enemy, it will make you stronger. And people start going insane. Mm-hmm. And has some great performances, great music. And I just want to throw in a plug for Ravenous. Have you seen that one, Brian? I have. Yeah, I, I finally watched it a couple of years ago. I, I, I like that. I probably need to rewatch it again. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's one of those where it's like, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about the first time, but yeah, I, I would definitely be interested to oh, see it but again. It's definitely an acquired taste. And yeah. a lot of people think acquired taste means, oh, smart people like it. No. Yeah. Acquired taste <laughs> means maybe it takes you a little while. Maybe you, maybe you won't pick it up. Maybe you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all. Um, but yeah, May. Let's talk about May. Okay. So May is about a veterinary assistant who has a lazy eye. And she has been social awkward her entire life. And we, we see her as she is trying to come out of her shell and come to know other people. Um, we've got a potential boyfriend in Jeremy Sisso. We've got an assistant. We've got a secretary that works where 
She works played by Anna Ferris, who I completely forgot was in this movie uh, because I hadn't seen it in about 20 years. Yeah, a movie has low-key has a great cast. It has an amazing cast, and it's all anchored by, I, I think, a just tremendous performance by Angela Bess as May. Yeah. I mean, then Nicole Hiltz, James Duval, there's lots of really good people in this movie, but uh, Angela Bettis is, uh, I mean, heartbreaking is one thing, because it's, you yeah. know, it's not difficult for a good actor to make you feel empathy, empathy and sympathy for a girl that people are laughing at. That's not that difficult. Everything she does in this film is impressive, that you can make this ca character this weird and still the audience feels very warmly towards her. Um, and, you know, even though she is fractured and often does things that are what we would now describe as cringe, uh, we empathize with her because we've all been there. We've yeah. all been that awkward person at the party who doesn't know anybody. We've all been that person who thought they were being asked out on a date but weren't, or uh, thought you had a chance with this girl or guy, but you didn't for some reason. I mean, we've all had those awkward, awful moments. Uh, and I, I think this movie is a brilliant combination of the, you know, the misfit strikes back, you know, kind of anti-bullying story mm -hmm. that we was so prevalent in, in the 80s. But I also think even more interestingly, it is the 2000s version of Frankenstein. Yeah. I mean, she, 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 she you know, Frankenstein wanted to build a, a monster uh, for hubris to prove that he could, to prove that he was brilliant. May wants to build a friend because she wants a friend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's heartbreaking. Well, and a big part of the reason it's heartbreaking, and in a way this kind of ties it into frailty, because of the fact that we see early on uh, May's mother basically, you know, she she tries to get May to, you know, be be socially acceptable, I guess, by trying to take take attention away from the lazy eye she's just being conformist that's it yeah. it's just like you you know it's that idea of don't acknowledge your difference don't ignore you know like pretend you're completely normal uh as every other person and just you know but i mean just telling a kid to just ignore something that is as clear as plain as day not really all that realistic oh no and the the thing is it's like instead of trying to help her daughter, you know, interact more with people on her own terms. What she does is she basically gives her this doll that she had as a, that the mother had as a kid. And like, you know, this is, this is your first friend. And it's like, if you, if you can't necessarily make a friend, you kind of build it is sort of this idea that, you know, and I made this and it's like, you know, that's what you kind of need to do. And so by the time she's an adult, she is stunted emotionally, socially, and to the point where it's like she feels like the only way she can live is with this doll. And basically, that's that's who she is for most of her life. And so when she tries to get into... um, When she tries to interact with people, it just comes out wrong. And... yeah. It, it is a lot to do with, I mean, and it, it's a lot of things. May I think it's Frankenstein. I think it's Carrie. I think it's a slasher movie. But it's also a very simple statement of 
raise your kids right, especially if they're a little bit different. Yeah. Not telling you what right is, but it, it certainly the way she, the way May was raised was not uh, conducive to good health. So I, I think like the film has a strong moral standpoint of, you know, no, you're fine. <laughs> my, my phone rang and I just wanted to ignore it, but then I looked down at it and lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, um, uh, 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 and it was and the funny thing was, it was a campaign call. The governor, <laughs> the, go, the guy running for governor, calling me on a Saturday night while I'm podcasting. Good lord! How you, how did you know May Lionsgate paid for May cost one point seven million? Probably cost less than that, but it didn't even crack seven hundred thousand at the box office. This movie was dumped um, unceremoniously by whoever was in charge at Lionsgate at the time. I happened to be, luckily, at, in Austin uh, at South by Southwest. At the time, it was playing. It wasn't playing as part of the festival, but it was playing in two or three theaters in Austin. Um, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but I have read in the past that Lionsgate opened this film in Austin and Fresno. That's it. Good. That's it. Uh, it could be could be possible. People have seen it elsewhere. So, but um, they dumped it. They just treated it like garbage. And the irony is, it would have done somewhat better than it did had they supported it. And it has now gone on to become a bona fide modern cult film. Like, oh yeah, you mentioned this movie on Twitter, and people go nuts. They love it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I don't. I want to say played in Atlanta, but I can't remember if it did or not. But I know I definitely didn't get to this one until DVD. And then um, I actually got a chance to meet uh, Lucky Mickey at a Dragon Con a few years ago. And that's how I got my copy. I, he had his table. So, um, yeah, so this this was the first time since 2003 I'd seen it. And it just, it flattened me as much as it did the first time. This is, this is... Again, talking about this has just I I'm first and foremost a soundtrack person. I'm a music person. I love the music in this. It's such yes. a wonderful sad score in this. Uh, the cinematography by Stephen Yeldon Yedlin. I mm -hmm. wow. I mean he he did he he's worked with Ryan Johnson in the past few years, hasn't he? I mean yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they know each other for years. Ryan was one of the editors on this film. He's actually credited. And so is Chris Sivertson, who's directed many interesting genre films, oh um, including uh, Girl Next Door. Not Girl Next Door. Um, I Know Who Killed Me. Chris Sivertson did that one. Uh, and much better. The Lost, he also made. Uh, and yeah, Ryan Johnson was one of the editors on this movie. And he also threw it. Here's a little tidbit for your listeners. If they don't know this, one of the characters in The Last Jedi is named Kennedy. He's the, <laughs> bad, the one of the evil uh, generals who dies. One of the evil um, Sith. Oh, they wow. Sith. And yeah, made May, Kennedy, and that's May's last name. I, so I, Ryan, yep. Well, now I have to rewatch The Last Jedi. So, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, it's funny, yeah. He threw in a little May reference into The Last Jedi. And there, um, I hope I'm not talking out of turn, but Ryan and Johnson, Ryan Johnson and Lucky McKee might be working on something together as we speak. Oh my God, that would be that would be awesome. Um, Maybe not as we speak because right, it's Saturday right, night. Right. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> they are they are working on something, and I, I I wish I knew more, and I wish I could say more. Yeah, excellent. 
the the performances other than this, Jeremy Sisto is really good in this movie. He yes, I, he is. I I love that he's able to. I mean, he he's such a dick to her during the breakup, and I I love the way he shoots the breakup and the quote unquote breakup. The way that May finds out that he doesn't want anything to do with her. It, it's just such a simple and uh, just devastating shot. The way because it's a it's a scene that we've kind of seen a million times, a million different ways. But for some reason, the way he does that in there, where it's so close yet so far, it, it's just such a it, it's a devastating scene. But yeah, Sisto is terrific in this. Anna Ferris is really entertaining. I, again, I completely free, I can't believe I forgot she was in this. It was, and this was right around the time of scary movie films and where, you know, where she was in kind of her peak uh, popularity as for film. So, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's disappointing that Lionsgate just basically dumped this movie out because of the fact that you would think that they would have been able to do something with this just by letting people know, oh, hey, Ann Ferris is in this. So Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, at the time, I, I don't know if she would have been that big of a draw to anybody because it was like right around the first scary movie, I think, uh, or a year before, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, it's a good point. She was a, good, she was a bigger star in this. And Jeremy Sisto had a run there where he was doing nonstop indie horror films, and he's really good because he has to be a dick for the audience to see he's a dick, but he also has to be somewhat appealing so we can kind of see what May sees in him. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it, 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 I, I just think the, the ultimate moral of this fascinating uh, multifaceted horror story is be kind to yeah. other people. That, that woman who lives down the street by herself, she might be completely happy with her life and she might be miserable and sad. You don't know. Yeah. So like, don't be cruel to people, especially people who may have some kind of an issue mental, physical, emotional, that, uh, you know, might make their life five degrees more difficult than yours. It's a simple message. Don't, don't be a bully. Don't be cruel. Um, you know, I, and I love that, even, even though it is a tragic and, and dark and sometimes darkly funny yeah. horror movie. Yeah. Um, I saw it with two of my friends, Eric and, and Chris, two guys who were film critics, and we laughed frequently at this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, when the, the sequence when she shows Sisto her student film. Oh God, uh, yeah, that... <laughs> and his reactions and her reactions, and it's it's a it is a uh, it's like a tennis match of emotional reactions. Mm -hmm. I'm watching him, him looking at her. I'm like, wait, what am I watching here? And then they make out, and she bites him, and uh, it's uh, I love it. I think it's a yeah. Uh, Sometimes subtle, sometimes not subtle, and which is fine. Uh, but it's a great script, and I, I I've seen all of Lucky McKee's films. I think he's a great filmmaker, and I still think May is, of course, his masterpiece. And he should. I, I don't care if he tops it or not. I will always like his movies. Yeah, I mean, May is May is. I'm I'm not unfortunately. Unfortunately, I'm not as familiar with his work as I should be. I this rewatching this makes me realize. Yeah, I'm probably going to go back and start to rewatch some of his stuff, um, some of his other stuff. That 
you're right though. I mean that yeah that that uh, zombie film Jack and Joel she shows this so is just really it it's such a twisted movie but it's also really funny to watch. But I mean the thing is it's like even when even when this film gets violent at times there's such sympathy because it's just it feels like everything is just out of a matter of the fact that she cannot make anything work. In right. the and she does, thanks to her mom, she has no idea how to communicate. You know, it's not just a movie about like bad parenting equals evil. Like we know that and yeah. the movie's a lot deeper than just that. But that's also a theme that like the mother was more concerned about, you know, outward appearances than inner peace. Yeah. <laughs> you know, inner, inner, you know, teaching her daughter, it's okay to be different. Mm-hmm. You know, like she instilled in her, different is bad. No matter what it is, different is bad. And it's not. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I'm not going to give away the final shot just to say oh, I, it's one of the most, it's, it's beautiful and it's haunting, and it really is, it, it ends this movie on such a note that you, you're, you're, kind, you're unsettled because of how it got there, but you also, it really kind of ramps up the sympathy for May because of what it means. And it it's really, it's really, there's so much about that that is just absolutely amazing. And th- this really is a masterpiece. I mean, it, yeah, you know, that word gets used. Gu- the ending is a gut punch. And yeah. you could see, you could see both like the, the studio happy ending. You could see like the screenwriters slightly happier ending. You could see the much darker ending you could see like the five different ways that you could end this movie and i i honestly think that this is the best way it is yeah it's poignant and tragic but it also is like satisfying like closing a good book yeah no absolutely. Uh, and by the way if you if like you said you have not that familiar with lucky mickey's movie he, i like all his stuff but watch the woman first from 2011 okay yeah. all right excellent that, that's probably his second best in my opinion okay yeah i'll, I'll definitely start with that one I believe yep. May May actually just hit Shutter, so um, if I remember yeah. correctly, so I believe it's also on Tubi. But yeah, I mean anybody listening to Shutter is wonderful service, good yeah. bargain, love it. Um, you know, and I only mention that because a lot of the services aren't. Obviously, yeah. I do not work for Shutter, but uh, when you're looking at the ones that you have to cut, you're like, oh, that one's fourteen ninety nine a month. That one's twelve ninety nine a month. Shutter's still under ten dollars a month, and uh, you know. If you like horror movies, it pays for itself over and over and over. Yeah, and they always have a good stream of uh, they have always have a good stream of genre stuff. And I mean, just this year alone, they they add that Phil Tippett movie, uh, Mad God, on there, which was just staggering. And then one that I love from uh, Sundance, Speak No Evil, just hit last month, which is just disturbing. But I I yeah. can't get it out of my head. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Shudder. They, you know, uh, I know Sam Zimmerman, who is like the uh, head curator there, and that dude knows his old school horror, and they're also really good at acquiring international and indie stuff. Uh, I'm proud to say that Found Footage 3D, a movie I produced, was one of the first uh, uh, Shudder originals back in the day. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to check out Found Footage 3D on Shudder, I produced that with my good friend Stephen DeGennaro, uh, and it's a comedic riff on 
found footage movies, but it also, we also both like found footage movies. So it's kind of an affectionate riff on, on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. I had a good time making that. Yeah. I actually, I actually found that on a Blu-ray a few years ago and picked it up and I, I really enjoyed it. It was such a fun uh, movie to watch. <laughs> I'll tell Steven, thank you. That was his baby. He hired me to play myself in the movie. And then I kind of threw, and then I threw on a bunch of hats and, and I was helping to promote it. And I was helping to push it at festivals. And out of nowhere, him and his producer, Charles said, you've done so much beyond just playing yourself for two days. We want to make you a producer. And I went, oh yeah, that sounds great. Um, and then I you know, really started working um, my ass off to get that movie into the, into the uh, horror realm. I just yeah. wanted it to get a good home, and Shutter is a good home for found footage 3D. Yeah, I mean, even if even if uh, even if you even if there are sometimes where found footage uh, kind of grates on you, you know, I get it. I mean, the, some parts of that genre are you know a bit, you know, they're not always a bit easy to take. But I mean, found footage, well, it, I, I like that it's a think, kind of send up, but I, it's also a really good version of it. Thank you. That's a compliment to Steven. That's what he wanted. He wanted it to be both a satire, but also a legitimately creepy movie. Yeah. Um, so so that, that's all a compliment to him. Steven wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it so that it had uh, good chemistry among the cast, legitimate humor, and then hopefully some good scares. Uh, before we wrap up, and I, I really appreciate you... Uh, making the time to do this. I'm really, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, what are some other, what are some recent horror movies that you, you feel like people should uh, check out if they haven't already? Uh, Barbarian is in theaters now. Um, whether you see it there or see it at home when it comes out, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's a, an, an excellent uh, comedic horror film, not even comedic, I wouldn't say horror it's got monsters, but a comedic monster movie called Slashback hits Shutter next week, and it's about a bunch of kids in Alaska fighting back against an alien invasion, and that's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, what else have I seen lately? Bodies, 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 real good. Yeah. A, a smart reaction. Uh, a, a, I, wanna say, I, well, I was going to say reaction to slasher movies, but it's not that. It's just a smart version. You know, not, I mean, I've seen hundreds of slasher movies. Not many of them are smart. Uh, mm -hmm. This one has the brain. Uh, Idris Elba in Beast. That's fun. Yeah. Just Idris, de defending his two daughters from a, a lion out in the jungle. Uh, it's really fun. Uh, Prey. Phenomenal. Yeah. Have you seen Prey on Hulu? Oh, yeah. It's the, the uh, Predator prequel. Mm -hmm. uh, Resurrection with Rebecca Hall. I believe that's also hitting Shudder. Yeah, I'm that's hitting Shudder later this month, I think. Yeah, that's fantastic yeah i i saw that one i saw that one at uh sundance i the the third act really threw me but oh my god if you see it for no other reason see it for rebecca hall it's still one of the best performances i've seen this year is phenomenal she's always good she can do literally anything yeah but she's really amazing at playing someone slowly terrorized by something in an artsy horror mm -hmm. And Tim Roth, <laughs> and and Tim Roth is fantastic in that movie. It's her movie, but boy, it, he, does he try to steal parts of it? He yeah. is amazing. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> monstrous. I'll throw in a plug for a movie um, that, that it was not bad. Um, the Christina Ricci, I kind of liked it. Okay, all right. Uh, 
Um, and what was the one? Uh, Glorious, also on also on Shutter, a uh, comedic Lovecraftian monster movie directed by my old friend Rebecca McKendry, and I want to plug that. So there you go. Okay, excellent. There's certainly plenty to check out as you as we uh, go through the month of October and really just any time because to a certain extent there's no wrong time for horror. Scott, uh, where can people find you? Where can people find your stuff? And where are you working on right now? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Scott E. Movie Nerd. It used to be just my name, Scott E. Weinberg, but I changed it because I didn't want to be verified anymore. Uh, so I changed it to Scott E. Movie Nerd. And now um, you can, uh, if you go there, you'll get all the plugs to everything I do. But I, I run a Patreon-only podcast called Overhated, which is, as you know, you'll be on it soon. It is a show about um, movies that have been unjustly dismissed, disregarded, hated, um, or trashed. It started as a podcast like to defend Catwoman and Battlefield Earth and, and find some good moments of those bad movies. But it's expanded to include movies that have been like overlooked or unfairly dismissed. Mm. Uh, our most recent episode, I have uh, the Manchurian Candidate, the Jonathan Demme remake from 2004, and I discussed that with Rodney Asher, the director of the fantastic Room to Room 237, which, uh, the, as a Shining fan, I'm sure you've seen. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And he also did the glitch in uh, Glitch in the Matrix last year, which I was a big fan of as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm I I I'm a yeah, I mean, it's well worth uh, subscribing to Patreon to uh, listen to that podcast. It's really, it, it's really an interesting. He always has really interesting conversations and really puts the a lot of these movies in a very different light. And uh, yeah, I I just I need to figure out what I really want to talk about on there in order to because uh, there there are a lot of movies where it's like yeah, I I do really like the movies and it's like you know, which one do, which ones do I want to talk about? I mean, there, there's so many that are really kind of interesting, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, it's a pleasure to have you on here, Scott, to talk about horror, to talk about these movies, which are absolutely fantastic. And uh, thank you very much for your time tonight. You are very welcome. Thank you for the invite. Uh, you just said, let's talk underrated horror. And I threw out my four standards and you went perfect. And then, <laughs> and then two weeks, three weeks later, here we are. So, you know, uh, thanks again for the invite, Brian. Really good chat, man. I'd like to thank Scott for joining me on the podcast. I've won. Uh, I, I was a huge fan of uh, A's All Over. As you know, I've talked about it here a few times. I also was a big fan of uh, Science versus Fiction. And Overhead is a really entertaining podcast and i do hope you check it out and i do plan being on there sometime in the future i just have to figure out like what movie i want to talk about um that's gonna be it for the this episode of the sonic cinema podcast be sure to check out those movies that scott and i were talking about as well as the ones that he recommended there were some great ones in there uh again you can check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema uh, I will have some info on my original score for Player PhD, which will be coming out here soon. And then we've got one more horror podcast, and it's going to be a joy. Phil Faso is going to join us again, and we're talking 1982 horror. You can probably guess some of the ones that uh, we're going to talk about. In fact, we talked about mentioned a couple of them tonight. 
Uh, thank you very much for listening. This is Brian Scuttle, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you. <laughs>